Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Bonds or bond funds? What's your choice? Uh, what, which one are you going to take? We'll Bonds talk are- about that. And then the magic trick of ETFs, actually of mutual funds, that wasn't. They're trying to do this magic trick and all convert to ETFs, and it's not panning out very well. And mortality rates are on the rise significantly, according to actuarial insurers. Whoa. What does that mean for the fundamentals of these insurance companies? And speaking of mortality, we're going to talk about estate planning. That's always a fun topic. Yeah. We're going to go through that quickly. And do you have a good tax preparer? How do you know? And then finally, we're going to talk, we're going to talk, we're going to tie in the mailbag, the economic outlook, CPI and the Fed. Oh my. They're all tied together. The GDP, the debt. Are we, are we going bankrupt? What's the dollar going to do? And we're going to, we're going to visit that a little bit. Um, and then we're going to talk uh, to the to the Revere team about the markets. But first, and, and by the way, all of these articles, folks, that we get our research, we talk about and have some topical things are all in the show notes. Yes. So if you want to go straight to the, some of this data, the source data. Scroll down. You, you can read this. And it's this right is, there. A lot of this stuff is actually from these magazine, Think Advisor, Advisor IQ, and all these different ones that are disseminating information to advisors, mm. right? Yes. To, 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 to help us manage our clients or allay their fears or do whatever. And it's really a lot of it's marketing. Yeah. And so I kind of pull the curtain back and, and talk about that because I, I, some of it's, some of it is legitimate and some of it's a little manipulative. Yeah. We put and the so, show, you know, we put the shows together every week and usually have some pretty good like mailing list items in there, stuff that like people on the street aren't getting. Like there's some good stuff in the show notes. I encourage you to take a look. Yeah. And they, and we're going to, I'm going to give you some, some data from the government itself. Oh, okay. So, right. so I mean, some, some links that you can go to, you know, the, like the, the, the economic outlook from 2023 to 2033. Guess what? The debt goes way up. Yeah. I'll save you a long, long read. But if you want to dive into the numbers, you're certainly welcome. All right. Let's first talk about bonds and bond funds, which is better because bonds are, are got hammered last year. It was the worst year in 97. Well, ever since they've been keeping, keeping track of, of records. Right. And so, and, so, and you had some really, really bad years in the late 70s, 78, 79, but that kind of went over two years 
over the calendar year here, it all happened in one year. That's one reason it was the worst year ever. But the, a lot of bond sectors were down more than the S&P. They were down 25, 30% some sectors. Anyway, so someone asked a question, bond ladder or bond funds, which is best for portfolios? So bonds, here's the folks, I, I'll save you the, the, the trouble of reading the article, but I'll go through it very quickly. What is a bond ladder? Bond ladder is individual bonds laddered out according to maturity, like two year, four year, six year, eight year, 10 year, and 20 year. And then when the, the shorter ones come due, you roll them further out. And you just kind of keep this ladder at different maturities. So you always have some funds coming due. Okay. Now, um, what are the, what are the, uh, benefits of a bond ladder? Stability and predictability of returns. Wrong. Oh, bond ladder, excuse me. Stability <laughs> and predictability of returns. That is correct because yes. they have a maturity date. Yeah. Bond funds don't have a maturity date. Let me repeat that. A bond fund has no guarantee of principal and no maturity date. Okay. Most bond funds are a couple that are bullet funds. Okay. It helps you minimize the interest rate and fluctuations. Uh, the drawback or trading cost and lack of bond experience. You got to really kind of dive deep into it. Um, it says in constructing a bond ladder, it's generally suggested non-callable high quality bonds. Because if you're going to hold to maturity, you want to make sure you get your money back. Right? Makes sense. If It doesn't matter if you don't get your money back what the maturity date is. It means you lost. Okay? What are bond funds? Bond funds are professionally managed mutual funds that invest in bonds. Very good. Okay. Now, what they do is they buy all these bonds and then they put them in the, in the bond fund. It says the benefits, professional management, better pricing, maybe, lower barriers to entry, easy, yes, and may provide greater liquidity. I agree with all that. Drawbacks to bond funds. Bond funds never mature. Less control over distributions. You can buy a bond fund in, in August. It can be down by the end of the year, so you have a loss. But they still uh, sell a few bonds in there to create capital gain. They'll cherry pick a few fund, uh, bonds and they'll book some gains to give you a distribution to make you feel good like the bonds. By the way, equity stock funds do that too. So you could actually be down 20% on your S&P fund and get a, a distribution at the end of the year and have to pay tax on that. You could have taxable events on mutual funds in down years. And the expense ratio may be a little bit high, which is better. Uh, bond ladders offer a degree of stability and certainty of properly construction. Uh, bond mutual funds can be a way, way to uh, sp excellent way to advisors to spread client alloc uh, allocations across several funds. Okay. And by the way, they're not mutually exclusive. So let me cut to the chase, folks. Here's the deal. Bond funds, their structure, the way that they're actually built and structured, they have structural problems. So they never match their indice, never even get close to the index they're tracking. Why is that? Think of interest rates like a circle. Don't Everybody always puts them in a wave. Don't think of them as a wave. Think of them as a circle. When you're at 12 o'clock, interest rates are at their highest. They're about to come down. You're in a recession. Things are ugly. And interest rates have peaked. When interest rates start coming down, that's when bond funds go up in value, the, the, the price. You get capital gains in bonds. Why is that? Let me explain that very quick. You've got two interest rates in bonds. You've got the stated rate or the coupon rate on the bond, and then you've got the 
the effective rate in the economy, the actual interest rate in the economy. So when a company issues a bond and say they say it's going to pay six or eight, eight six percent, that's the stated coupon rate on the bond. And by the time they print out these uh, bond certificates and issue the bonds and get them out in the underwriting, it may be six months down the road. Interest rates, it'd only be coincidence if interest rates are still 6%. They may be seven, they may be five. Well, if they're five and my bond pays six, my bond is worth more than the bond that pays five. So people will bid up that bond. They'll pay a premium for that bond. And you won't pay a thousand dollar par value. Bonds are issued in thousand dollar par values. You may pay eleven hundred or ten fifty. And what that does is because you paid a little more than par, you're not getting six per. You're getting a sixty dollar coupon a year, a six percent coupon, but you didn't pay a thousand dollars. You paid eleven. So it may be five percent yield to you. So actually, the discount in premium for the bond is adjusting that bond to the effective rate in the economy. Conversely, if rates rose and interest rates were at seven, when my stated rate is at six, right? Now that bond's going to sell at a discount. It may be 950. And so that's also sets it at that effective 7% interest rate. Okay. So the, the old adage is what's the difference between a 20 year bond, same class like treasury bond or investment grade bond from General Electric. What's the difference between, well, it's not an investment grade <laughs> anymore, well, but anyway, you get my point. Yeah. What's the difference between a 10-year bond, a newly issued 10-year bond, or a 20-year bond with only 10 years to maturity? The answer is nothing. If they've got the same, same issue or same investment quality, right? It doesn't matter. And so a newly issued bond versus the out the existing bond in the economy, the effective rate will set the bond prices to make those equivalent. Mm. Okay. So now if you own an individual bond, you know, when that thing matures and if you hold it to maturity, you know what your yield is, assuming it doesn't go bankrupt with a bond fund. You have interest rates are peaking at, at 12 o'clock and now they're dropping. And so all of a sudden, all these bond funds are going up in value. Bonds are going up. You've got capital gains. They look good. The returns are good. And then interest rates drop all the way down to five, to five o'clock, six o'clock on that, on that clock. And you get a whole bunch of money going into these bond funds. So these bond managers got to go buy bonds when they're at a premium. And you have all these performance chasers chasing these bond funds and they pile into the bond funds. Then rates start to go up, hit seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. These bonds start having losses. So these bond funds start losing money. So all of a sudden he's getting, he's getting net redemptions. A bond fund manager has to give you your, people are saying, uncle, they want to get out. They're asking for redemptions. He's actually having to sell bonds to, to pay the people their, their left, what's left over their money. So that he should be buying bonds at a discount at the same time that he really has to be selling to give their money back. Conversely, he's buying bonds when they're at a premium because he has a whole big cash inflow at the exact opposite time when he should actually be taking profits on them. So just by the structural way, the structural problems with bond funds, they're always, you really can't hold them to maturity, but they're not usually a good long-term buy and hold, right? So you really want to buy, use a bond fund when interest rates are high and likely to come down and then take your profits and get away from them when interest rates are about to go up. So if you're buying it for consistent 
yield and premium and, and, and try to alleviate uh, fluctuations and you know that you're going to want it in a certain date in the future, then a bond is better. If you're doing short-term and tactical or mid-term trading, a bond mutual fund, actually a bond ETF, because you can trade it like a stock during the day, is, 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 is better. So they're both just tools. One is not really better than the, uh, well, they're just different. And yeah. so you've got to treat them differently. And that is the big thing. Okay. And so it really depends. And by the way, a little bit further in this show, I'm going to talk about money markets and how you can maximize your idle cash sitting in there. That's going to be in the mailbag. And that's a very good time to use a short term money market treasury bond or investment grade bond money market fund. Okay, so there are times that a money market or I mean, excuse me, a mutual fund works very, very well. But for the most part, as just a general blanket statement, I'm not a big fan of bond mutual funds. I have to use them in 401ks because a lot of 401ks, they only allow mutual funds. Okay, so anyway, that article is up there. So if you want to look at that, you can. Now, the big magic trick that, all, that, that Wall Street is doing right now is a lot of these mutual fund companies are converting to ETFs. So Vanguard was one of the first, the Vanguard actually figured out a way to convert their existing mutual funds to ETFs and they patented it. Okay. They trademarked or patented, it, I think. And, 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 and they, so nobody else could do it for like seven years. Well, that extension just went away. They, so they lost it. So now it's generic. Anybody can do that process. And so now you have a whole bunch of mutual funds are scrambling to convert to ETFs. Okay. Now, because they see the handwriting on the wall. More, let more and more people don't want to use mutual funds. They don't like the transparency, lack of transparency. They want ETFs. And so they're, they're converting to ETFs, but they're not, there's not this mass migration. They're actually having net outflows even when they convert. The bottom line, folks, if they've got a good strategy and they're doing well, they're going to attract assets, whether a mutual fund or an ETF. So it's a, if it's a bad strategy, it's just not going to work well. Um, but anyway, that's why you're seeing this mad dash. Now, you're not seeing that in the 401k space because a lot of 401ks don't allow ETFs yet. They could. They, you could do individual stocks in the 401k. We can at Revere. The team at Revere can even do options if they like in their 401k. So what do you got in your 401k? Ask your employer. Anyway, that's up there. It's kind of an interesting article. You're going to see more and more of your mutual funds all of a sudden have an ETF equivalent. Okay. So given a choice, why not do the ETF equivalent? If you can, you've got all the same, it's got the same return as if they own the same stuff. It's just how they're structured. It'll give you uh, more um, flexibility. Um, so anyway, um, all right, next topic, because I do want to get to the markets. Insurance. Did company. you talk about the tax? The tax. The tax. Oh yeah, good point, Don. Thank you. I knew you we had Don take. on the show for something. Okay. Um, something. <laughs> yeah. Something. We'll get to Don in the markets too, but that's a great point, Don. So <laughs> ETFs actually. Uh, uh, one of the reasons a lot of people like them is they're a little bit more tax favored because it's when you buy and sell the fund, right? Your your big capital gains. Okay. Um, um, and they've just got better tax, a little bit more easier tax 
favorability. Now, there even the regulators have been looking at that because a lot of mutual fund providers were bitching, saying, hey, that's not fair. So there's always a debate going back and forth. But that is one problem with the mutual funds is, again, it's, it's not when you buy the fund. It's when the fund bought the security, right? So it makes it tougher and you get all these distributions. When, in fact, they do window dressings. They know they want to make you feel good. So they'll go cherry pick a few things that have gains and take profits to give you a capital gain distribution even when they're down for the year. And so it makes you feel bad. They do the opposite of tax loss harvesting. They do tax gain harvesting. Tax, ooh, that's a good one. I got to write that down. Tax gain harvesting to make you feel good, okay? That's the problem with these mutual funds. That's why they, they're, they're not, they're, they're just, by the way, they also, the other thing on window dressing is four days before the market, because they got to put up their top 10 holdings at the end of every quarter. And ETF has to do the top 10 holdings at the end of each day, right, daily. So with the, and there's been some debate about that too, but they're doing these top 10 holdings. Um, and so they look on, on four days, or now it's three days because it's T plus two settlement. They'll look three days before the end of the quarter and go, what went up in my genre, small cap growth, large cap value, what went up the most for this last quarter? Oh, these three stocks, I'm going to go buy these three stocks and put it in my portfolio. So they're in my top 10 holdings, usually in the top five. So you look at the end of the quarter and you go, wow, they had those three things that performed the best during the quarter. Problem is they bought it way high and they didn't that you didn't know they just bought it three days ago. They did it, they bought it three days ago just to fool you to think that they held it for the whole quarter. Is that disingenuous? Uh, maybe. Anyway. So um that's another reason mutual funds, you gotta be careful. So that both of them are a tool. It depends on what you're using them for. Generally, an ETF is gonna be better than a mutual fund but sometimes you don't have a choice. All right. To the next topic, more talent. We should, we should, one, more, one other thing we should probably talk about is you, you did a good dissertation on bonds. We should talk about how we use them in our portfolios because we avoid the downside that you uh, went into detail about. And I know we've covered it in the past, we, but we should probably touch on it. All right, go ahead. To make ahead. everybody know. Okay. So we buy individual short-term bonds with a with an expiration date normally within, we, we kind of have them laddered with an expiration date from a week out to four weeks uh, with uh, yield, uh, usually they're yielding now between four and 5%. Right. So we take 10 to 20% of cash and put it in there. We don't have the decay issue that have with the net asset value meaning the bond price is going down. So you're losing principal in your account, even though you're gaining the interest. With us, there's, because they're, they're uh, of the way the bond is structured, we hold them to maturity so you get the full return and there's no loss in principal to worry about whatsoever. The other thing that we do is buy short-term, uh, it's- Treasury it's, market it's, mutual it's, fund. It's, yeah. it's a yeah. treasury, Treasury market mutual fund. It's the equivalent of uh, a money market, but it trades at NAV. So it trades at $1. And then at the end of the month, you get uh, the interest deposited and in, it's over 4%. Now you get the interest deposited into the account, depending on how long yeah. you held it. 
depending on how long you've held it and obviously how how many you buy for each. So uh, 20% there, and that's something we can quickly convert to uh, available cash if we feel we need to put it into security. So uh, neither of the uh, instruments that we buy have any risk of you losing uh, your principal, losing NAV. All you're getting is uh, interest added to your account because we don't invest in bond funds or bond ETFs, which when their value go their value goes down while interest rates are going up, and interest rates are unquestionably going up right now based on uh, the Fed continuing to raise what the Fed market Fed Fed Fed, Fed funds uh, Fed market market Fed is yeah <laughs> Fed funds market is saying uh, we're actually looking at a good chance of a six percent terminal rate now. Uh, in Fed funds, which is, it's gone up substantially since that job report two Fridays ago. And um, that's a little, that's a little uh, overview of the way we generate income with idle cash uh, without putting principal at risk. Yeah, so, due so, to NAV going down, the net asset value going down either on mutual funds or on uh, bond funds. Yeah. So, yeah. So let, let me clarify. O occasionally we will take a position in like investment grade bonds or treasury bonds in longer term, like five year, 10 year, 20 year as a trade using an ETF, but we treat it kind of like a stock position. So if it's, if it's trending upward, we're in it. If it's starting to break down, we get out. We're not, we're not, we're not holding those long term. Now for this idle cash, Don's talking about those, those, Treasury bills are individual bonds trading at $1,000 par value. So you have round, so for smaller accounts, or if you've got cash, whatever cash you're using, you got to be able to do $1,000 increments. So we do 5% each and we got them rolling every week. So you got to, but then for the extra cash, because right now the market's kind of choppy, we're holding a decent amount of cash. Okay. We can buy that treasury market mutual fund because the core money market, and this is what I'm going to talk about in the mailbag, is 0.45%. But actually, we can get over well, well over four in this money market. It's T plus one. So if we need the cash to do a trade, we can simply sell down. But here's the other thing. If the guy's got $4,200 idle cash in the money market and we're not doing anything at the moment, right? I can either buy him four... T bills and three hundred or four hundred dollars in that money market, or I can just buy that money market, or I can buy two T bills and twenty four hundred in the money market. The point being is we can fill up that idle a lot of that idle cash, so you don't just have a cash drag. But you got to be careful. You got to look at that. You've got to uh, uh, monitor that. Okay. Um, all right. So all right, we done, done, and we'll revisit that just a little bit in the mailbag. Okay. Now, uh, mortality rates have gone up significantly, um, um, especially for the younger people between like 21 and 60, right? Wow. Rising mortality rates. Oh, yeah. Rising mortality. And this Ew. is after all the COVID. This is not deaths from COVID. It's from other things. And this is the year after all the debt counts and stuff. And I, I do not want to get in a political debate. I don't want to talk about right, left, liberal, conservative. I don't care about any of that. Okay, these are from the actuaries that actually count the bean counters that count the death rates mm -hmm. for the insurance companies so that the insurance companies don't go broke. 
Yes. Okay. And they're saying more young people are dying. We got to raise our premiums. Mm. Okay. So forget about the media or the government or politics. The, the, so here's the question from a fundamental standpoint, if you're looking at insurers, you got to make sure that they can pass on the, the premiums that they're going to have to increase. Otherwise their profit margins are going to get squeezed. Now, if they raise their premiums too much, people will drop business. They'll, they'll go. So the, the sweet spot is how elastic is that? How, how much can they raise their premiums? So in any event, I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. You can look at that. I don't want to dive too deep in that. And then um, speaking of mortality, the estate planning issue, folks, the estate amount, the allowable amount you're allowed to give to loved ones when you pass or inter vivos during your lifetime. You don't have to wait till you die to give it to them. Of course, if you give it to them while you're alive, you don't have it anymore unless you do some clever estate planning where it's in the kids' names, but you control it. In other words, they've got all the vote, but you've got all the control. Uh, that's kind now, of Dave used a word there that 90% of the people listening don't know what it means. So your, your brain is extremely large, but can you explain that word <laughs> to somebody that's you get that? like... I Here's my brain, Don. Here's my brain on steroids. Yeah, yeah, you're you're looking you're looking thin, Dan, but your head's not any smaller. So, well, that's good. All right, so so, Mr. Intervivos, can you? Okay, so here's what I'm saying. Look, if you loved your kids that much, you'd have given them your stuff already, right? But you're not dead. You may need it. You don't you don't know whether you need it yet or not. Yeah. So the way and 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 transplanting a huge oak tree is very expensive. So you want to transplant the sapling or the seed so that it grows in where you want it to, the estate you want it to grow in, but you still want to control it. So there's ways to cleverly do things where you can, and look, this is all this is legit. Look, if you don't think the billionaire, like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates say you should pay your fair share of estate tax, really, Bill? Really, Warren? You're not paying a damn dime. You have your family foundations. So shut up. <laughs> Seriously. Coming in shut hot up. this week. Yeah. They're going to pay less estate tax than I am. No, that's true. Now they control it and their big foundation never gets cut in half. They got good moves. So Bill and uh, what's her name? What's his wife's name? Um, Linda. Linda. Bill and Linda's. No, no. They're divorced. Well, okay. But yeah, they they're... still got the family foundation. It's $200 billion. <laughs> It never gets cut in half. They're not paying estate tax, but their kids get to run that big thing for in perpetuity. Of course. So the family controls the foundation. And then below that, you got family partnership or some kind. I mean, there's all kinds of complex. I don't want to dive down a rabbit hole. The whole point is there are ways to get out of paying estate tax if you're willing to complicate your life and jump through a few hoops. If you're not willing to jump through a few hoops, then... That's fine. You're going to have a simplified life, but you're going to pay the government a lot more than what I think they deserve because I think they waste money. But that's me. Now, here's the main thing, though. But for most people. So right now, the exemption is $12,920,000. If you have the bypass clause instead of just a loving will, if you have a loving will and you say, I want my honey to get everything. You just lost one $12 million exemption because you can both get $12 million. 
right? If you have what's called the bypass clause. So above, just remember it, above ground, below ground. As long as you have that bypass, then you separate that out and you each get that amount. Now, when the first spouse dies, you set up a bypass trust where a portion of that, their credit exemption goes into that and the spouse can use it for their credit, I mean, their maintenance, welfare, support, et cetera, for livelihood, but they don't have to. So the, the, the surviving spouse, you split the stuff up, they get their half and they can live on their half. And that bypass could go up to 50 mil, grow to $50 million for the second spouse dies. And it doesn't matter. It's a state tax free. So just having the bypass clause in your wills or living revocable trust will alleviate a, the estate problem for most people. Now, it sunsets back to $5 million adjusted for inflation from the 213 law. I don't want to get too complicated. But the bottom line is it's going to sunset back between six and seven, between six and seven million each if you have the bypass. So if you don't have the bypass, January 1st, 2026, it goes down to six plus million. If you have the bypass clause so that both of you get your exemption. You still get to use the same amount of assets, just different titling. Then you're going to have 12 million plus. And remember, that'll start compounding faster than you could spend it. So if you've got already nine or $10 million, that bypass where you get 12 million probably isn't going to be enough for long term. It'll be okay for a while, but you're going to need to do something long term. By the way, if you're high net worth, that 12 million that you get right now, estate tax free, that's gonna go down to 6 million, you'll lose that 6 million. So if you're high net worth, you wanna be giving some of your stuff away now. Again, inter vivos, but you can set it up so that you're gifting it, you're giving it away, you're using your lifetime exemption, but you're actually not giving it to them outright where they can spend it and control it. You can do that, but there's also other ways to do that. And then always, there's always the booby prize that life insurance agents just love to do. They like to sell you a big, expensive, permanent life insurance policy, a second to die with huge commissions and long-term back-end surrender penalties. So they make 20 grand or 30 or 40 grand on the sale and you're the patsy. So life insurance is the booby prize for better planning in estate planning most of the time, in my humble opinion. Anyway, there's a whole article on gift on estate planning tips. There's a whole bunch of other ones using uh, grantor retained annuity trust and the dynasty, a whole bunch of stuff. It's way too complicated for the show. But if you need some of those things, please do not hesitate to call. All right, now. And that's why we have to have extra large headphones for Danny Stewart, ladies and gentlemen. Man, I need to get some bigger ones. I think these aren't, I think these, we need some bigger ones. All right, all right. How, there's another article, how to tell if your tax preparer is good. Oh. Okay, first of all, folks, I'll save, I'll save the uh, Captain Obvious, or uh, you can read the article. Here's the main thing. If you go right before April 15th, like February, March, and you bring him a shoebox worth of your stuff, and he says, oh, thanks, and puts it in the format and says, okay, here's the taxes you owe, and here's my bill, fire them because they're not proactive, okay? They're just a 
they're just a, a historian for the IRS, right? They're just reformatting your information, putting in the format the IRS wants, and then giving it to them, and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's H&R Block's uh, business model. Well, yes, even better than that, what they do is they're, well, I don't want to say loan sharking. They're actually giving you your, your refund early and charging you a nice interest fee. That's why they do your taxes for free. They're taking a VIG off that refund, man. Mm. Anyway, but yes, yes, if, if you, and look, if, if you got a very, very, very simple tax return, it's just you and your wife or you and your husband or you and your significant other, and it's, you know, just W-2s and that's it. You know, probably an H and R hell TurboTax is fine. Yeah. Okay. I'll get your most of the Yeah. You, know. you don't need. You know, if you got more complicated stuff, then you need a good CPA. But a good CPA is going to say, "What is your revenue? What is it going to look like? What do you think is going to happen this year going forward?" You need to do some forward-looking planning, folks. If you need a good CPA, I got two or three I work with. They're proactive. They're very good. Call me. It's it's not it's not easy. And if you if you have questions about your own CPA. If you want, I'll be happy to talk to them. I can ferret out within five minutes whether they're they're good and proactive. Yeah. That's the bottom line. Anyway. All right. Now we're getting to the mailbag. So nah. the outlook, the economic outlook, the CPI and the Fed. Oh, my. Let me find this very quickly because I've been getting lots of feedback um, um, from uh, Nicole. But before I do hers, because she, she actually is very active and engaged, but she's worried about the economy. Before I go into that, because that's a little deeper conversation, I'm going to talk, these are the two mailbags we got this year, this this last week. Dan, Don, and we talked about this already. I noticed that Schwab only pays 0.45 uh, interest on cash balances. That's their default money market, FDIC, Shirt, et cetera. Is there a way, is there a better way uh, to, to do something so that it gets swept. Uh, Fidelity does that. Fidelity automatically sweeps. It's 4.16. I'm not sure Fidelity does. Maybe they do. Okay. It just seems like Schwab is taking advantage. Um, um, and I, and this actually, he, this is, this guy is one of the very good CPAs that I have <laughs> as, as, as a resource. <clears throat> He's also a client. Sorry, I forgot to discuss this with you when we had our phone call on tax issues. Uh, I looked into the best alternative and it's a mutual fund paying around 4.25, actually 4.35 now percent. We do have to buy the fund through Schwab, uh, and because it's not the default core money, FDIC money market, and it actually complements the T-bills because we don't have to buy in $1,000 par increments. We can work around it so we can fill in the gaps, okay? So that's the, the kind of ties in with the mutual fund uh, debate we had earlier. Okay, so that's that. This is a second podcast, and this is from the guy watching our YouTube. Folks, if you want to watch a lot of our research, we put it out on our newsletters. You can go to the subscribe button, and all this stuff, this, this podcast right here, and our daily market, it's actually called Tomorrow's Insights. Every day the market's open, Don does a short 10-minute video every night. That'll be delivered in your inbox if you hit our subscribe button. But this guy commented on our YouTube page, you just go to Revere Asset on Google and you hit subscribe. And by the way, this, if you subscribe on our email list, on our, on our website, this will go in your inbox Saturday morning. 
But Zach, our illustrious producer, will actually have this posted up on YouTube by one or two. Yeah. If you hit subscribe, you'll get it before the market closed today. That's right. So it depends. Are you a trader or are you an investor? Is it Friday, real time, or Saturday, slow mail? Anyway, your choice. He said, I learned what I learned from today's podcast. By the way, this is a, about a week ago. What I learned from today's podcast, how one, how price inflection points are made and used as important futures markers. Two, some wisdom about waiting to go aggressive until a clear trend shows itself. Folks, that's very important. A lot of people will see one or two or three big up days or even a week, and they'll jump all in thinking it's the bottom. The market reverses lower for a second or third leg down, and you get slaughtered. The strongest short-term bull markets always occur in bear markets. In fact, the top 10 biggest percentage up days all occurred in bear markets. The top 20, only one occurred in a bull market. By the way, they, you hear that story about if you just take the top 10 days, best performing days out of the market, you miss 49% of the returns. You've heard that story. Folks, first of all, you can't just take out the top 10 days. How do you know to close out at the close the day before and then buy in right before the open the day after and skip that one day? It's just ridiculous. Anyway, this quant guy got tired of it got sick and tired of it. He said, you know what? I'm going to do it and I'm going to just take out the worst 10 days and just do the opposite because you know, the buy and holders are the ones that promote that miss the 10 best days. And if you miss the worst 10 days, you actually perform way better than missing the, uh, than, than, than missing the 10 best days, right? And so then he said, okay, let's be fair. We're not going to be, we're going to be politically correct we're going to take out the best 10 days and the worst 10 days. And they still perform better than just missing the 10 best days, right? So you had missing the 10 worst days is, is really key. Missing both the worst 10 days and best 10 days, worst and best, is in the middle. And missing the best 10 days is dead last. And by the way, folks, it's not even mechanically possible. So it's all uh, 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 almost, I mean, it's mental masturbation. It's just, you're, just, you're just, you know, talking about philosophical things that you can't implement. It's like owning the index. You can't really, you've got to own a fund with the index. In any event, um, so that's why it's important to go when, you, when the market starts firming up and it looks like it may be bottoming, you go in in layers. You don't go all in and all out. Number three, a detailed analysis of the major indices. Don always does that at the beginning of his, of his nightly videos, long-term, short-term, mid-term. Four, stochastics and trend line analysis with insights in how far price can wander from moving averages when the moving averages are flat versus trending up or down. Five, relation between stock direction, dollar, bond, VIX, gold, Bitcoin, and Fed moves. Six, changes in our portfolio. Let me ask you a question. How often does your advisor update you on changes of the portfolio? Do they do that daily? Just asking. Um, seven, how to analyze the after hours price volume. And then he said on Airbnb, uh, a C CRDO issues, and much more. 
what the money manager report to their clients, what other client, what, excuse me, sorry, let's try that again. What other money manager reports to their clients daily? Question mark. Wow, I feel so fortunate. And, and if you're not a client, look at what you can learn for your own trading account. Thank you very much, Don C. So C, thank you very much. We appreciate those kind words. And if you don't believe that was real, go to YouTube. C is actually a very active uh, uh, investor. He actually kind of retired. He's partially, he's retired, but loves the market. So he's still monitoring from afar. And when I say afar, I mean afar. Um, all right. Now, last mailbag topic, and this is going to be a little bit deeper. Okay. So, and this is going to tie in kind of everything that we've been talking about. Okay. And uh, this is from Nicole. She's classic. She said, let me get up here, Nicole. Okay. So she said, um, you may be tired of my light reads, laugh out loud. But again, when something makes me go, hmm, I need you to be on my radar. My kids inheritance is counting on you pivoting in the ways you've spoken on for years. I believe this surprise will be one that you have prepared for in your videos, uh, making sure the elderlies don't lose uh, so much the first years in retirement sticks with me in all the videos. She's talking about sequence of returns. I personally have uh, a time for you to build back better, but I've sent this, uh, sent this, and I hope you watch out for other people because I want to be a fine. I don't want to be a financial weather. She put woe in front of the man, woman, but I see the clouds brewing. So she's worried the clouds are brewing. And remember from last week, she sent this thing about the stress testing and the planning and this stress testing the bonds are doing. And then this week, in and she sends me the Twitter, she sent me the budget of economic outlook to 2033. But she was also talking about the CPI and the data, how they're changing the CPI data. I put that article also up on our website, okay? So Nicole was actually, she was a teacher, but she went back to uh, uh, working. She's in accounting. She had her degree in accounting, so she understands accounting and finance, right? But she's starting to do more and more economic research and start to look at some of these scary. In other words, her tinfoil hat is starting to get shinier, right? Well, she's starting <laughs> to get worried. She's going, this debt is unsustainable. Right. And and look, it, it'll be different this time. It'll, look, at some point, things will have to give. You can't change the math and you can't change the economics. So we want to have a discussion about the U.S. dollar, gold, uh, international debt. And because and she was saying, what about, well, I had another, this other woman called me yesterday who's worried and said, what about these bank bail-ins? She's reading on the website about how banks can bail in and they can just steal your deposits. In other words, they can bail you in and keep your money mm. because that's a liability. The, the, your deposits can be considered a liability. Folks, our debt is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, ergo the taxpayers, ergo our assets. So theoretically, we the American people back the U.S. debt, right? Yes. Now, so everybody, and you see all these doom and gloomers on the radio or on, on, on radio or TV talking about 
gold going to the moon and, and, and the market's crashing and the dollar's going to collapse and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying it's, it's not out of the question or it won't happen. But remember, Japan started monetizing their debt in 1991. And they're still considered a safe haven, a, current, a stable currency. How? I've got no idea because economically, the fundamentals don't jive. The Bank of Japan owes 90% of all of their debt. They monetized it. They bought it. Their bond market isn't even real anymore. They own 60% of all the stock and ETFs, probably 70 now. Okay? So they've done that. And so they're keeping this Ponzi scheme alive as long as they can. Okay? So even though our debt looks really bad and it's horrible, we're the tallest little person in the room. So on a relative basis, on a relative basis, we're better than Europe. EU is, is, is terrible. Japan's just done. They're put a fork in them, right? Japan is done. Europe, EU is in trouble. And China, a lot of people miss China. They don't think China's have such a big problem because most of their debt is held at the Providence and, and local and city level. The Providence is you know, the regional level, not at the national level. So a lot of people, it, so it's harder to see how much debt they truly have, but they have a lot of debt. But look, if we were Zimbabwe or hell, even France, then yes, our dollar would absolutely be in the toilet. But what gives our dollar value is our boomer submarine, our nuclear submarines, our nuclear aircraft carriers, and our F-35s. It's not the politicians in Washington. Those guys are morons, or those people are morons on both sides of the aisle. There are a lot of dumb women up there, too. Sorry, ladies. Um, they're just a lot. I mean, there's only a few good ones, right? And it doesn't matter what side you're on, but it's our projection of strength, the reason it's a, it's a flight to quality. So while all these things are important and we're going to hit a a point in no return at some point, and we may be getting there with the interest. But once they start monetizing the debt, Kofal used to say this all the time. Once they start monetizing the debt, you can't turn back because leverage works both ways. Once you start taking, shrinking the money supply and taking it out of the system, you start having massive deflation. So the bottom line is they're screwed. They've got a Hobson's choice and it's going to be hard to get. Now, they can string this along for years and years and years. But Kofal used to say, famously say, they've got the print button. That's all they know how to do. They print. But here's my, my point. Why will, you know, this lady that called me last night, not Nicole, this other lady, said, what about all these bail? I read all these bail-ins. Why do they have to bail in? They don't need to bail in. They can just print. The Fed is not a government agency. It's owned by the member banks. It's like a cartel, like OPEC. So it's owned by the member banks. The Fed represents the member banks, not you, the American people. When you realize that, then you'll understand. But the main thing is, the whole point is, the Fed can just print money and give it to people or give it to banks to firm them up. They don't have to go. That's what they did in 2008. 2008, the banks were all insolvent. Every national bank was broke. They were bankrupt. And the Fed printed them trillions of dollars and gave it to them. That's why the Fed was created to actually bail out the member banks. They got too over leveraged. It wasn't for your FDIC insurance for, well, now 250, it used to be 100. That's not what it was for. It's never what it was for. That's what you think it was for. But here's the problem why I personally 
don't think they're going to bail in like the bank accounts or do these other huge, you know, extreme measures. Because the, and the digital currency was another question. What about did they're going to force us to go to digital currency? First of all, the baby boomers don't know. I mean, you don't know how to use technology yet. They need more of them to die off first. I mean, I'm not being ugly. I'm just saying you've got a big swath of baby boomers that aren't ready for crypto to a digital currency. They do want a digital dollar, a dollar, a USD digital dollar because they can track everything. But everybody's worried about that. Here's the problem. If they try to go to bail in the banks or they got try to do something super drastic where they re it's called the great reset. There's different, you know, different people putting out different scenarios of the great reset. Right. But if you, if you are going to do that, like if you're going to bail in the banks, you're just going to steal everybody's money. Now you have just made it obvious to the entire American pu public that you're thieves. You're, you know, right now the country's split half one way, half the other. And so half the people believe the Democrats are thieves and the other half believe the Republicans are thieves, right? It's a great system we got. Right, right. right. But now, but now if they steal everybody's money, a hundred percent of the people Everybody's know thieves. they're all thieves <laughs> and they, and, and, and they haven't taken our guns yet. So until they take our guns, I mean, if they, if they bailed in the banks, you would have a revolution. You'd, you'd literally have people come because you just stole their money. So they can't do it yet because they're not, it's not ready for prime time yet. That's why I, I push away some of those arguments. But again, mechanically, it's so it's much easier to print. So if you do it that scenario, it's like sticking a knife. Now they're going to fight. You're going to corner them in a cage versus the printing and the, and the inflation. It's like slow cooking a frog. The people aren't going to bitch that much. Okay? So... That's my, now, if you're still worried about, and I'm not saying it's not possible down the road. So look, if you're still worried about that, the solution is you want to buy maybe 10 or 15% of physical precious metals to offset paper accounts, brokerage stocks, bonds, bank accounts, whatever. But whatever you do, don't ever go overboard. My former partner, Kofal, Dan did that. He was all in gold. And when gold took a dive, he absolutely freaked out and sold it. And I called a couple of clients and said, you asked me to track your gold. You asked me to tell you when it's time to buy. I just got a sell sign from, I mean, a buy sign from God. They said, what do you mean? I said, Kofal just said uncle. And they said, okay, buy me some. And I'm being a little tongue in cheek. The whole point is, folks, if these people have all that power, all these power that you're worried about, about being able to, and I'm not saying they don't, they probably do, but if they do, don't you think they're going to like short futures gold and make gold crash before, and then give you a solution and be their savior to bail you out? In other words, if they can manipulate all this other stuff, they can certainly manipulate the price of gold or hell just confiscate it like they did in the 30s. And then you've got to decide whether you're going to be a felon or not. So the much easier way is simply to print. I'm not saying you don't plan for that. And I'm not saying you don't have some real assets, hard assets, whether that be physical real estate or precious metals or, you know, some other thing. I certainly don't think a crypto digital image or an NTF or crypto is a hard asset. That's, that's, that's me personally. It's in cyberspace. There's nothing hard about it. It's a bunch of zeros and ones, right? 
I can't knock can't, on it like this. That, yeah. That's that's a hard asset right there. Right. If you if you can hit it and it makes a sound, it can. It's a hard asset. So that NTF you just bought, seriously, someone bought like a a, 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 NFT, a Facebook right. farm for like one point five million dollar. What? That's right. Does it grow cyber carrots? It'll be worth I mean, something someday. I mean, what the someday. hell is that? Anyway, I, I'm sorry. I, I, you know. Anyway, uh, so I'm not ready to 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 uh, promote uh, uh, NTFs or anything like that just yet. Or NFTs. Or NFTs. NFTs. Sorry, N yes. NFTs. Anyway, that's kind of my take. Look, I could put on the t a tinfoil hat with the rest of them, and I don't like the way the politicians on both sides. I mean, there's so much waste, it's not even funny. And yes, we do need to get our country under control. But a lot of these things and this stuff, uh, there's, I think that they may, look, it's all about power to them and they want power. The question is, how are they going to do it? And how can you counteract that? So that was kind of a deep conversation. Um, folks, if you guys want to talk about any of that, because uh, it's way too long to go into. I mean, I can talk to you about the, the central banks, the money manipulation, the way they manipulate the BLS, the Bureau of Labor or the CPI numbers. By the way, there's a guy named John Williams, Shadow Statistics, Shadow Stats, that reconciles it and does it back like they started really manipulating this data in the 70s when we started having, guess what? High inflation. We started having inflation and the unemployment run up so bad, so they wanted to make it look not quite so bad. So they started changing the way they counted the participation rate. Or, oh, stake went up in value? Well, in price? Well, we're going to change the definition of stake to meat. And since hamburger is cheaper, the price of meat went down. I mean, that's literally their, their thinking. They, they manipulate that data. That's just what they did with CPI this time. They're reducing their reliance on you, their, their weight on used cars, and they're going to housing, some housing. And some of the 25% of the housing was a model, like hypothetical. I'm looking for that article right now. But why do you think they reduced their their exposure on used cars because used cars are at all-time highs right now see they get to pick the basket of things they add in hell they even came up with that core cpi x food and energy because food and energy had some of the highest cost so the whole point is they can manipulate the data you've got to be able to reconcile that and that's what john williams did he went back and he'd go okay well the unemployment is for whatever it is five percent right now if 10 years ago, if you counted the way they did 10 years ago, it'd really be 7.3. If you did it the way they did it in 81 or 80, it would be 9.4. And so he, he actually makes it all right. He standardizes, if you will. But anyway, and there are other people that do CPI and the others. The whole point is, you know, it's like, it's like the old adage. It's not who votes, but who counts the votes. Okay. It's not the data. It's who manipulates the data. Okay, how was that data formatted? And that's why I always like to try to go straight to the source. Anyway, uh, listen, uh, if you want to talk about any of that, I can certainly talk to you about that. But it's way too long to do on a podcast and it's too long to put in an email. So you're just going to have to call me on that. All right. Does anybody want to add anything to my diatribe and black helicopter speech? No, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> Now, let's move on to the markets. We kind of hit that mailbag. 
and let's go on to the markets. Don, why don't you take the lead and 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 go over where who I don't know which guy you want when which analyst you want to bring on first. Well, I'm going to start first with a, an overview on the indexes and uh, let's go back to February 1st. February 1st was the FOMC meeting where uh, Jerome Powell's comments were uh, perceived as uh, pretty dovish for the market. And right before uh, they made the decision to raise rates and, his, and the statement and then his statement and then the press conference happened, the S&P 500 was trading at 40.49. I'm looking over to my screen right now. The S&P is trading at 40.50. So all of the gains that we accumulated since that press conference have uh, little by little been evaporated. And the big change that came uh, after uh, his press conference on the 1st, after the FOMC meeting on the 1st, was an employment report on the 3rd which was much hotter than expected. And that was the first indication that the Fed might have to keep rates higher for longer. Since then, tw this week, we've had two inflation reports come out, CPI on Tuesday and PPI on Thursday. Both of them uh, reflected that inflation stopped its recent slowing and in fact, maybe ticking up. And in, that caused interest rates to spark uh, higher. It caused uh, the dollar to go higher. Both of those things are negative for stocks. So we've seen a fairly harsh sell-off in stocks this week, all the way down to this key level. If you've been watching the nightly videos, the first key level that I've been talking about is 4,100. We finally broke below that yesterday into the close. The next level down is 4076, which is where the 21-day moving average is. That's our short-term trend indicator uh we broke through that today the next level of that is 4050 and that is holding so far so the net result of this is that we get a little bit more defensive on the break of 4100 we get a little bit more defensive on the break of uh, 4070 and we'll get a little bit more defensive on the break of 4050. uh so far 4050 is holding uh as i said but uh, the market has had a decent run here uh, off of the lows and technical damage from a perspective of how much did we gain off the lows versus how much have we given back. Uh, it's certainly within uh, acceptable norms, uh, but we're not going to ignore some deterioration uh, in the prices. So. Uh, we've got different exposure levels for different uh, types of markets, depending on how bullish or bearish the leaders are and how the three different timeframes that we track are acting. And uh, the short leaders are acting okay. Uh, the short-term timeframe has gotten uh, gone from positive to uh, it'll go to neutral if we get one close below the 21. It'll go to negative if we get two closes below. So uh, that's causing us to get a little bit more defensive. but. Um, so far, the pullback, uh, stock markets don't go straight up. We were above the t our short-term moving average for 20 days, which is not an extremely long time, relatively speaking, but it's been a pretty good rally. And this is a normal pullback so far uh, off of the highs. But that normal pullback is, is uh, caused by, uh, you can see the cause and effect of the stronger dollar and the higher interest rates. The market is reacting negatively to that. 
so we certainly want to pay attention to this 4050 level right here. Ideally, we want to get back above 4076 by the close, and we want to tackle that 4100 level uh, next week. We're really just at the bottom of the range. The market has traded in three ranges, one from the end of December to the beginning of January, one from the beginning of January to the end of January, and then a third higher level uh, since the beginning of February. And all we have done is pull back to the bottom of the February level. So no damage done across our intermediate and our long-term timeframes, no significant damage done to leading stocks, but our short-term trend has turned down for now. And that just means we won't be adding exposure. We'll be pulling back a little bit uh, and waiting for more cards to come out of the deck. So as long as we're above, everybody knows uh, the key 200-day moving average. That's where all bear markets occur. I'm going to show, uh, actually, I'm not. Am I going to show it? Yes, I am. Let's find it. Um, my lovely 13 bear market with recovery chart. This is what we avoid for clients. We protect asset. Jeez, I'm an ease if I knew how to operate a. Okay, here we go. You got we it. Yeah, yeah, it's coming along. Protect the downside, especially. When we're under the 200-day moving average, this is the key level. Every single one of these bear markets occurs underneath the 200-day moving average. That's our long-term line. That's the black line on the chart. We're still above there. Nothing to be overly upset about as long as we're above this 200-day moving average. Below it, all of these bear markets come into play. That happened last year with last year's bear market. The typical drawdown from the top, uh, from a bull market to break in here is 12%. That's what we uh, saw last year. That was what our in-house portfolios performed. But the market, it's underneath that 12% that we uh, protect people from. We went down to 27.5%. Uh, that's the key level. 12%, not that easy to, or not difficult at all to come back with. All you need is about a 13 uh, plus percent gain to regain your 12%. Uh, but when you're down 27 and a half, you need a 38% gain to get it back. And this is what we're experts at uh, preventing from happening to polio, especially if you're approaching retirement. So a little bit of a short-term blip uh, in the market, uh, looking for more strength or at least to stop going down here. For now, we've put the brakes on adding new positions and we'll get a little bit more defensive depending on how we close. So that's the market overview. Uh, let's shift over to Michael for his segment. Are you ready, Mike? Yep. Can you All hear right. me? Take it away, Mike. Yes, we can. Hear you very well. Take it away. Okay. All right. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about um, consensus and um, how consensus investing is usually wrong. And <laughs> to be successful, you kind of need to go... Um, against the consensus and be a bit of a contrarian and um like basically at the end of the year um 85 percent of experts predicted um a recession in the first half of 2023 and that was when the market was at the lows and everything was looking pretty bearish and um basically they all got it wrong because we haven't had the recession yet technically i mean we'll see when they date it um because recessions are always dated um in the future for a, for a past date. So we don't know when the start of the recession will be if we get one, but 
I mean, just from the jobs numbers and unemployment, um, it, it doesn't doesn't seem like we're in that yet. And the market now is rallying because um, most of that consensus uh, was wrong. So if you're ever following the consensus or if you're ever looking at something that everyone's talking about, chances are it's kind of too late. And um, you have to be able to see quality that others don't see or appreciate. And um, like a good contrarian bet, it could it could be wrong, but it ended up working. And now um, people are starting to get a little more bullish on it. And it doesn't make sense to a lot of people was um, like housing, for example. Um, housing was showing a lot of strength, but consensus was super bearish. Anyone you ask was negative on housing. And um, for a while, I mean, even, even now it's still pretty strong. I haven't checked it in the last few days, but, um, but the housing stocks have been one of the uh, strongest sectors in the market. So if you notice strength and consensus is, is negative on it, but the charts aren't really saying that, that's usually um, going to it, it could turn out to be a good bet. That's kind of what you want to look for as opposed to uh, something that looks really good and everyone's talking about it. I mean, there have been plenty of examples of uh, of stocks that are acting super well. They go on leaderboard. Um, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's looking at it. You go on, um, on message boards, like, I don't know, Wall Street Bets or Stock Twits or Twitter, and everyone's talking about it. And that's kind of... Um, it may be a little too late for that. It, it could work. I mean, you had crazy squeezes for different reasons in GameStop and AMC, but usually um, if everyone's talking about something, it, it, it's something you kind of want to avoid. So you need to look at areas that are showing strength that are still um, unappreciated. And based on um, on the canceling strategy and what seems to work best is you, you get the, the biggest leaders and the best opportunities when you're coming out of a bear market in the stocks that have been showing strength and, and holding up well during that bear market because it's at that point that that the average investor and most people want nothing at all to do with the market and the, and if a stock is is up they're like oh well i mean that's just gonna get get hit as well like i i, I want nothing at all to do with the market i don't want to buy anything especially not something that's near its highs and those are the stocks that when the market turns end up rallying the most and performing the best because you've got consensus um, bearish on the market and and not wanting to buy those. So um, it's something you need to be a bit of a contrarian, but also you don't want to buy something that um, that everyone's bearish on and it's hitting 52-week lows necessarily because it, there's a reason for that as well. So you want to find strength, but you want to also combine that strength with um, consensus overall being being bearish on the name or not super hyped about it. So you you, you it's it's um there, there's definitely an art to it. Um, it's not so easy and straightforward. And um, and yeah, just just be careful anytime on CNBC especially um, or in general when everyone's talking about something could work, but oftentimes it won't because. Um, that's just the way the way markets work. They're they're designed to fool the most people um, pretty much as often as possible. So um, just be aware of that. And um, yep, that, that's um, and, and like for example, um, th this year, right? Like the S and P was up six point one eight percent in January with consumer discretionary the best performing sector, and you had terrible retail sales. Consumer discretionary was the worst performing sector in 2022. 
And the NASDAQ actually performed even better, up 10.6% in January, making it the strongest January on record going back to 2001. And with high interest rates, um, economic forecasts, uh, consensus was definitely most bearish on the NASDAQ. So, um, yeah, just uh, be careful of consensus and it, it's usually wrong and you got to um, be a bit of a contrarian if, if you want to succeed in the market. All right, Mike, that uh, home builder trade worked for a while. You nailed that early, but uh, the last week it's kind of come apart and that coincided with uh, that spike up in the dollar and that move up in interest rates. Let's show uh, the 10-year note very quickly. Uh, this two, three right here was the employment report. Uh, that was when rates stopped going down and started going up, and they've been going up nonstop since then. All right, Connor, what do you got for us this week? Yeah, so um, a lot of names in my sector, they were reporting earnings this week, and we've seen positive reactions so far. And I just wanted to highlight some of these names, and I also wanted to mention, you know, it's we've seen uh, character change this year in terms of earnings. In 2022, it, it was the year of earnings gap downs. Stocks were getting killed off earnings reports, like big companies. Netflix is a good example. And this year, it's been the opposite. So you can ar argue that all the bad news, all the, like Michael was just saying, consensus was near lows. So a lot of names are seeing positive reactions. Um, some are seeing positive reactions just due to really being beaten down, but some are also having a combination of posting really good numbers and also being just uh, sediment and consensus is really low. So the first one I wanted to talk about is a uh, Airbnb. This one reported this week and they closed the day up 13.4%, which was its biggest one day increase since uh, they went public. And this was a one where Wall Street got caught off sides. Airbnb reported uh, 48 cents versus 25 cents expected and 1.9 billion in revenue versus 1.86 uh, expected. And one thing that they highlighted in their earnings call was uh, their increased demand in Europe and how that's helping them grow. This, this one, you know, the market's pulling back and Airbnb's gonna follow the market to an extent, but um, you know, when a stock gaps up like this on 422% volume, then a lot of people are getting in. And I think when you look at Airbnb, this is a liquid name that has a fantastic story that I think a lot of large market participants can, can get behind. So although it's pulling back, that's not what you wanna see, but when you take into account that what the overall market is doing, it's pretty expected. The next one is TTD, Trade Desk. This one, same thing, had a huge uh, earnings pop. It, this one was actually up 33% on 623% above average volume. And this was another surprise. Um, they surprised with better than expected fourth quarter and issued uh, guidance that outpaced Wall Street's expectations. Uh, and one thing that they mentioned, they authorized a $700 million buyback worth of stock. And this, uh, 
This was designed to help offset the impact of future share dilution from employees. And as you can see in this chart, big gap up over the 200 day and markets down, this one's coming down as well, but this can be good if the market wants to bounce, these can provide uh, pullback entries on these names. And some of these, you can you could call them laggards and many leaders of the past bull markets won't lead the next bull market, but there's something to keep an eye on because certainly there's, there's names that see uh, 30 to 40% drawdown and, and many funds and whatnot see value in that and, and they can retrace back up. But you never want to get caught trying to catch a falling knife or hold on to a laggard. So that's why that's why price tells the truth and, and that's why we are always following what what the price is. That's what that's what people are willing to pay. Uh, the next one is Roku. Same one with this, gapped up double digits over the 200 day. This this is a big one in Kathy Wood's fund and you know, Kathy Wood has been having a good year so far. It's gonna be interesting if this is just, you know, uh, a, a dead cat bounce or these are meaningful reversals. As long as it's over the 200 day though, that's a huge shift in character. As you can see in the chart, this thing hasn't been over the 200 day in a very long time. Um, they they reported a, a loss of a buck seventy, but that was better than than their estimates. And what they did say was, through a combination of operating expense control and revenue growth, they're committed to a path that delivers a positive adjusted EBITDA for the full year of 2024. So, although although negative earnings, um, the they seemed very positive and had a had a good outlook. Uh, next one is CROX. This is Crocs. Now this one, just looking back for a 10 year time horizon, this has been one of the best performing stocks, was a leader in this uh, recent uh, bear market. It held up relatively well. Yeah, Don just pulled up the monthly. When you look at that, it doesn't really look like anything for concern, but they topped their fourth quarter revenue views and issued an optimistic 2023 outlook with their profits exceeding expectations. Um, their earnings grew 23%, revenue increased 61%, and sales grew 54%. So positive growth there. And they've got a new product line, their sandals. They're expecting that to uh, help help them grow. and. If Don, if you could pull up a daily, this uh, in a stage two uptrending, uptrending stock, a good entry point can be the 50 day. You can trail that with a stop loss or an entry point. And as you can see, after this broke above the 200 day, it's just been trending very nicely and it had its first meaningful pullback right off the 50 day and bounce. So really nice action in, in this one and really good earnings report. And then the last one is uh, Cisco. CSCO. This one's held up relatively well. Once it got over the 200 day, it's just kind of been consolidating and it tried to get over that 50 level, but now it's pulling back with the markets. But they reported earnings of uh, 88 cents per share with revenue of 13.6 billion. And both of these numbers just blew past analysts' expectations. 
and they were they uh, gave clarity saying that the demand remains stable. Um, they have very low order cancellation rates and the easing easing of supply constraints is strengthening their outlook. So an, a really positive one for this one. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look back at this whole quarter, most of the stocks that have been reporting earnings have seen positive reactions and that's just super notable because that was clearly not the case in 2022. So you, you can make, make an argument that it all the bad news, all the bad fundamentals may be priced in for some of these names. So, yeah, that's all I got for me. Yeah, that's a really good point. The, the last thing that you mentioned, I brought that up last night uh, in the video. A lot of these stocks are former leaders of the the growth era of late 2020 and early 2021, and their uh, their price to sales, price to book, pr uh, price to earnings just got astronomical uh, when things started slowing down uh, in in the economy uh, and gross and interest rates started rising. Interest rates are very, uh, it's a major headwind for growth stocks. So a lot of these started pulling back and a lot of technical damage is done, but along with that, their ratios came more in line with reality. And now they're starting to report earnings and, uh, actually showing that they're viable entities, they can produce cash flow, they can uh, continue to grow sales and earnings, and the market has been bidding them up uh, at least early this year or this quarter. It's a lot of the broken former leaders that are uh, leading the parade so far uh, in this, uh, this earnings cycle. Thanks, Connor and Dan, that's, uh, that's all we got for this week. Well, thanks. And hey, by the way, that's a great point. Everybody wonders why interest rates, rising interest rates would be bad for growth stocks, right? Because if you're a growth stock, a lot of times you're getting private equity, you're getting equity money, not really bonds, because if you're doing a speculative growth stock, if you give me a convertible bond, well, it's interest, but then it's convertible. I mean, a regular bond, I don't care about five or six or 8% interest. If you make a home, if you make a gazillion dollars, I get my 8% interest, right? So I, so usually these private deals have, 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 uh, are equity plays or at least convertible equity. But what are the alternatives? So when you raise rates considerably, now it, you have other options for your money where you can make money safely at 5.5%. So 5.5% your hurdle rate, that's good enough. You don't need to take risk. You don't need to go more riskier assets. So when interest rates were at one half a percent or one or one and a half, it skews all the the fundamental reality and you can't, there's no place to get quote safe money. There is no money market paying interest or treasury T-bill paying interest. So there's nothing to do. So you got to go into riskier assets. Remember what helicopter Ben Bernanke said, we're going to push risk when he was doing all the quantitative easing, we're going to push investors into riskier assets, which is what they did. Now you're just on the opposite side of that. Now they're tightening and making it tougher. And it's like Warren Buffett famously once said, when you get in tough times, recession, whatever, it's like low tide coming in. You see everybody at the beach who's not wearing a bathing suit. So now all the Ponzi schemes and all the less than quality investments, the shadier deals, they're getting all expo exposed. Okay. So what Don's saying is now through this kind of carnage, through this 
bear market cycle coming out on the other end, you're going to see a list of who and some of the leaders were the same. But now you're going to get a better they're going to their numbers are going to show and whether they're really worth it or not. Anyway, that's that's a very important point. Folks, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, just send it to send them to revere asset.com up in the top right hand corner there's a subscribe button they can just put in their email address and their name and 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 this this podcast will go into their inbox every saturday morning as well as a daily or tomorrow's insight video don does every evening that the markets are open um, that'll go in their inbox in the evening you can also there next to that there's a contact button that you can just if you want to send me a message and you can just send it to Dan at Revere Asset too. But there's a contact. You can send me a message if you want a question on a stock or you want a complimentary portfolio review. What are you, you know, the subscribe buttons to subscribe to our newsletter. The contact button is to reach out to us if you've got a question. Um, you can also go to our YouTube channel and hit subscribe. It's just Revere Asset. Pull us up, hit subscribe, and you'll get this podcast probably by one today. Currently, it's... Uh, 11 central time. So in a couple hours, this will be up on YouTube, folks. You can also email any of us, dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, Ted, Hunter, uh, or who's the third one? Ted, Michael, Michael at revereasset.com. Or you can always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Folks, have a good three-day holiday weekend. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week on your money. Because it's not how much you make in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep.